Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Marvel's World podcast, a podcast where we speak to scintillating, tantalizing, and scrumptious people. People who help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you love the podcast, share it with your friend and, and spread the joy. Give us a five-star review. If you didn't, this podcast doesn't exist. Today, we're in for a special episode, a special panel episode, where we speak to two remarkable comedians. We've got Sharon Simon and Philip Simon, both professional comedians from two sides of the pond. You've got one from, Lund from the UK circuit and one from New York. So let's just say we're in for a special meeting of pizza and full English breakfast discussion on comedy. Please welcome <laughs> Philip Simon and Sharon Simon. Hi Marvin, hi Philip. Hi, hi Sharon. Should probably point out we're not related. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important. Especially if anyone related to me is watching this, you know that my father's name is Philip Simon. So they were probably completely confused. That's right. <laughs> Tell us about yourselves guys for people that haven't listened to our previous episodes. I'm loving the fact that you're asking these questions as you're pouring yourself a tea from a flask. <laughs> Is this tea? I was wondering if it was water. Hot water. Hot water. Oh, hot water. Okay. <laughs> I'm the only I'm the only one who's not English, and I think I'm the only one who is drinking tea. <laughs> yeah, I'm on water. <laughs> That's true. I want it. <laughs> Philip, why don't you go first? Me. Okay. What 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 was the question? Tell me. Tell people about me. Um, uh, I'm a professional comedian. I live in London stroke Hertfordshire and I am on the UK comedy circuit. I was professional and full time before lockdown. Um, and I was doing all right. I was making a living, um, gigging across the UK, did some gigs abroad. Uh, I've also been an actor before, so I still do commercials and things like that. So that was great. And then lockdown happened and <laughs> everything went tits up. My diary emptied as most did overnight. Um, gigs got cancelled. I had a commercial that was cancelled, stuff like that. Um, but like others, I've been able to adapt and do things online, which has been useful. But really, I'm just another comedian trying to ply my trade. It's... He... And he also brings don't what and he also has a massive book for you guys to get as well, isn't it, Simon Philip? Yes, I mean it's it's a small it's a small book. Um, I don't want you thinking as volumes. Uh, yes, I, I did. I did a children's show during lockdown where kids can send in jokes, and I I then tell the jokes, and I, so I did this show, which was always a free show, uh, just to entertain kids during lockdown, and I self-published a joke book which is raising money for a charity called Fair Share, which helps feed families and vulnerable children. Uh, and at a time when the government has stopped feeding children, it's useful that a charity has started to do so. And this was the charity made famous by Marcus Rashford. And um, so all the profits in the book go to that. Um, and I'm sure we'll mention it again, but since we're talking about it, it's available from my website, philipsimon.co.uk forward slash shop. Yeah, there's. I mean, one thing is, even during these times of like maybe governments not giving enough for us, there's lots of organisations, lots of great people who are donating and supporting businesses and people across the world. 
Yeah, I've always said it. I think it's the mark of a government that charities even exist. And the so, fact that we have charities as a concept means something's wrong with the world. But and I think something like inherently wrong with us, because I find that the people that I know who've never had to do without don't even understand what that is. Wow. They think people who are doing without are just lazy. Uh, there's a lot of people who think that here as well. Um, there's, and I, I, sadly, I think a lot of the politicians, I don't know who it was. I saw a video today of a politician who was speaking in Parliament. I don't know who it was, but, and I don't know, even know when it was, but he was saying how the politicians and the journalists and all those people who have jobs and have job security and have money and have nice houses they can't possibly understand what it is to queue up at a food bank and have to you know one where your next meal's coming from or feed children who normally would be getting free meals when they're at school but now they're at home for having to feed them um so yes it's amazing the the work that some charities are doing yeah Exactly. I think one of the things in the bat, in these such difficult times is that you see some wonderful people and you see the worst as well. So that's 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 a good thing about this sort of these times. Yeah. And one one thing also, guys, uh, we've got Sharon can also get you married on Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I'm the second you're coming. I'm a wedding officiant. So if anybody is engaged, like. <laughs> It's a really good time to get married because, you know, you can have your, someone else's insurance and they can help you get vaccinated or get <laughs> whatever you need, especially if you're stuck at home and you're getting depressed. It'll help you get, you know, therapy. I can't believe I went that direction. I'm very, like, I very much believe in love. And so I, I believe in love and marriage, but I also believe most people I know are not in love and married. So, but I do believe that you can have both and that both exist. But I'm also a professional comedian in New York, and like yourself, Philip, I had tons of work canceled, and now I'm, I'm not exactly where I was in terms of my career. So, like everyone else, I've learned TikTok. I'm looking into buying a camera so that I'm doing more than just filming on my phone through Zoom. I have a, a online dating show called Broadway Comedy Club Presents The Mating Game, where I set comedians up with non-comedians, and also other zoom shows i'm producing some star trek stuff just to not not be not a comic because the other option is to just give up on on the arts and i don't think that we should do that because i think things will come back someday even if new york isn't what it was it'll come back to some degree exactly yeah i think it, it will be what it was eventually but it will probably take some time for people to want to sit in a dark cellar right next to a complete stranger coffee. well we've already lost some clubs have you, and we're worried about losing the others yeah well that, that's the thing the venue's shutting down as well mm. yeah do you guys feel that there are some do you feel that there's a select venues within like the uk and new york that are definitely not going down through all of this well, Dangerfield's closed, and that was like a, a relic of history. If I, I apologize if neither of you ever got to go to Dangerfield's. Nothing was updated from the 80s. It was dimly lit. Some of the staff <laughs> were the same. These like little red um, lanterns on top and on bottom, like you would see in like the movie Punchline. 
everything <laughs> and that was recent that was like like a year ago and they shut down which was really sad i think we were worried about all the clubs but we're more worried about the clubs that don't serve food because the ones that do serve food have been doing some business with takeout through this uh, okay so like places like the comedy cellar will probably yeah yeah I think we had in the UK a huge injection of money from the government for the arts where a lot of venues could apply to get funding and there were some venues like the comedy store that got nearly a million pounds and there were other venues like the Frog and Bucket in Manchester that got nothing and the Frog and Bucket is I would say one of the best clubs to play in the north it's a really nice really nice atmosphere great you know drunk stags and hens and passes but a really really nice room for comics to play i don't know what their current situation is with an appeal or anything else but when clubs like that don't get the support from the arts there's problems small events are closing but a lot of them where they've got loyalty from the tv name act they've been able to put on fundraisers or, or do live zoom shows or instagram live shows things like that so so i think a lot of clubs have survived online whether they'll still have a venue to go back to because if they're not connected if they don't own the venue and the venue itself has gone bust then i think in six months time we're going to see a lot of venues no longer wanting to do comedy it's, it's scary, especially with like a Zoom show, they can make some money off of the tickets, but at least here, the money comes from drinks. Yeah. Now, that's quite an interesting thing. What, what's going to happen? So, I mean, so many pubs in New York and London are going to close down, but what is going to like, like, they will be some pubs and bars coming back, but how, how's that going to work? Like, how do you see that process happening? Like bars and pubs coming up and then comedy clubs starting again so comedy clubs are in a separate category but i'm i'm sad to see that the places where they have enough money to build beautiful structures on the streets are still doing well because you can have dining on at that's outside even though it's in the tent it's really not outside so they build these beautiful structures they put heaters in they're still thriving and the businesses that can't aren't. Uh, my neighborhood bar was called Coogan's. It was a runner's bar. It had been around for decades. Uh, it, it, it didn't make it. It already didn't make it. Okay. And so going back into like comparing sort of like two scenes in New York and sort of the UK comedy scene. I mean, Describe sort of the challenge, like describe the process of like how someone starts off in the New York scene and like progresses to being the top of the ladder. So here's what's really weird. I can tell you what it was before, but we're obviously in a time of transition where the, where what works before isn't going to work even when this is over. Because even when yeah. this is over, people's online presence mean more than their ability to hold a crowd for an hour which will hurt comedy because people will go to see their favorite internet star and then think that seeing a comedy show isn't good because the person hasn't been added along enough to do yeah. the time 
But in the past, just get, I mean, the, the number one thing is getting up. The more you get up, the better you get. Uh, we still get, uh, there's still ways to get up here. There are rooftop shows, there are outside shows, there are illegal shows, there are shows that are in churches, so it's a religious thing, not an actual comedy show. And if you have the antibodies or you feel safe, you can still perform. It's not in front of a hot crowd. I don't know if you disagree, but I don't think necessarily years in front of a hot crowd make you a great comic. I think they improve your timing. But in order to be a great comic, I think you need to fight through some difficulty to know what's going to work anywhere because a group of people all the way to the left and a group of people all the way to the right aren't going to necessarily laugh at the same thing. But if you know how to work both sides, it won't matter. You can work the room. You can work both sides. And so what are your... You mentioned a lot of interesting points, Sharon. I mean, like illegal shows that was interesting you mentioned like in churches and has anything like that sort of happened in the uk philip in terms of like trying to bypass it like that i don't actually know and i'm i'm such a square kind of like even when i i came off my gap year thinking no one had touched drugs and then found out everyone had been on drugs the whole time um <laughs> You know, I, no, no one includes me in their illegal activity, unfortunately. So probably, <laughs> probably if they were doing them, they'd be like, well, don't tell Philip, he's probably a copper. Um, so I, I don't know. I know that there are venues that have tried loads of different things, like skirting around the loopholes of, well, if, we, if everyone books as a family and they, and they sit in their groups and we can be outside or inside. And as you said, the, if you've got the canapes and, and the... The, the heaters and things like that. I've, I've kind of shied away from all that. I don't want to do comedy at the moment in a live venue if people are going to get sick as a result of it, because I don't want comedy to be blamed for the return of COVID. And I think when the government started opening up clubs and things like that, I think they were doing it because they wanted eventually to be able to say, well, we did our best, but you know, you wanted to go to clubs and mix, you wanted to go to bars and mix. So, and I, so I think until COVID is gone or at least under control, because I don't think it will be gone for a long time. Um, I, I really, I'd like to see less things available. So fewer things happening online. I think what you say, Sharon, about um, changing the, the nature of comedy is really key because you're right. Someone's going to go to the comedy club to see, 20 minutes from a comedian they've only ever watched 30 second TikToks of and they're going to be bored after two minutes and it's not because the comic might not be good enough it's but it's because their attention span is 30 seconds having watched them for th on their TikToks so it would be really in interesting to see what happens and how how it's affected and where comedy is where comedy takes place I, I, I think dark sellers may well be a thing of the past for the next year or so and i think open rooms where with good ventilation or you said churches gardens things like that because people are going to be a bit more conscious about where they put themselves and i mean things have changed forever but where do you think do you guys see things going from now because like everyone's saying like right i need a big social media presence or they're going to aim for tiktok youtube and they're going to do all these different things and like 
where do you see the next thing from that? Because like once someone starts something, then we all follow it. And then what do you see the next sort of trend being for people to try and grow and that's beyond me. I'm forced into this computer stuff. Like I, <laughs> I don't hate it, but I've learned how to edit. That's kind of cool. But I really am like a club girl. I love being in the clubs. I love performing in front of a hot live audience. What's going to happen next with this? Seriously, if I, if I knew that, I would be in like great shape. I would be the most confident comedian, you know, if, if I was like, oh, this is the next big thing. This is how where the direction's going to go. I have I have no idea. Yeah, I think there's so much that changes so quickly because yeah. TikTok is huge, but a few years ago, Vine was huge and then it disappeared. And TikTok really is just next generation Vine yeah. of people doing short videos that play on a loop. Um, if I knew what was next, I'd invest in it now. <laughs> and then I'd sit back and just, I'd retire. Um, I have, I have taken to the online stuff and I can do the editing and I can do the filming. Um, and I've embraced it more because I find the lack of comedy in our lives now so depressing and I'm homeschooling two children and I'm living a life in a, you know, my own little bubble as everyone else is. So the chance to do something comedic is great, but not having that live interaction is a killer. And even online, if you're on a Zoom call and you haven't have a gig and everyone's off mute, great. You can get the laughter. You can have the interaction. I did a gig the other night where everyone was on mute because they were a bit reluctant to take themselves off. And you're just doing a monologue at that point. You're trying to mm. whip up the crowd into a frenzy, but they're sat in their own homes in their pajamas. It's all a bit weird anyway. The supermarket arrives with the delivery. Amazon arrive to the package you know they're not focused on you i've done a few corporate gigs and they're like i want we want you for an hour like, no you don't no, you want me for 20 minutes and that's it because that's all people can cope looking at the screens for because that's what the attention span's changing to to fit the medium um hopefully that will change when we go back to clubs one development development might be is that clubs continue to stream their shows online so you're performing live and you're playing to a live audience but you're getting a larger audience because they're they're streaming it out into the, the wider world the problem with that obviously is usage and how do we get paid for what's put out there and how the, other, the other problem is theory. like sometimes you say something in the moment that makes sense in the show and yeah. somebody can tape you, cut it out, and make you look like a horrible person. Yeah. It's, yeah that's, that's, and it's one of the things that I found that you mentioned the interesting point there about like people being on mute and it being hard to sort of get that live thing. There is one thing that I've tried similar to that where like you put three people on the screen, but yeah. you are just three people and you, you perform to them and like you leave the sound on and you can see if they're laughing or not. So I do like a feedback mic and then you, and the, you put it in gallery view and then you see people sort of hearing and laughing if it works or not. Yeah, I've seen some shows where effectively the, the, the host sells the front row like that. So they'll, they'll put four or five screens on permanently 
and they've paid maybe £10 for their ticket and everyone else has paid £5 or is getting in for free. Um, that, that can work because you then get a, a sense of an audience. And that's nice for that small audience as well because they feel they're getting something that's a slightly higher level than someone else is getting. And you bring me to an interesting question on like sort of different styles of comedy. And do you feel that certain types of comedy would work better in it? Like people like Spencer Jones, as you mentioned, Philip, who's like, he's, he's very clowny showing, like he does a lot of props and like sort of magic comedians. Do you feel that Zoom would suit more of that than sort of a straight stand-up? I think stand-up's fine, but if you're joke heavy, you need the audience reaction. You know, I, if you are someone like Gary Delaney, Milton Jones, Mark Simmons, comedians over here who are very, they, they do one-liner jokes, very quick, sharp gags that they need to know immediately if a joke has worked. Whereas if you're doing a longer narrative, a bit, you know, a bit about your, your family life or whatever, and you can get away with longer silences, it doesn't matter so much. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I apologize. That's right. Is that delivery? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually like Zoom comedy a lot, but I think it's super, super different. Um, I, I think you can do longer bits that are a little bit more complicated on Zoom because if they're paying attention, they're paying a different kind of attention to you. You don't have to get laughs consistently if you get big ones at the end on zoom um so i find i've found that helpful and fun for writing i i would be it's odd i'd be fine with it i'd deal with anything just like anyone else but i think i'd be weirded out by performing at a club being filmed and being streamed all at the same time so one thing I want to get at, because one thing that's always fascinated me about the US and the UK comedy scene is that sort of like the structure of like is slightly different and like the comedy styles are very different. And I really sort of like to get into um, sort of like Philip told me in, in the, the last podcast, there's this thing called the Pomodoro technique, which is effectively you give yourself 20 minutes or something and you write down sort of ideas and it forces you to be creative in certain sort of time frame. Um, do you do something sort of similar in New York, sort of a similar? No, that's really interesting. I'm not sure I quite understand it. I don't know if it's specifically a UK thing. It's something I've, that I've heard comics talk about where it's just a way of focusing writing so that you do short bursts of work rather than saying, right, I'm going to write for three hours this morning. I think it's that you do 25 minutes of work and then a five minute break and then 25 minutes on, then a five minute break. And it, it just focuses the mind in a different way than, right, I've got three hours, I have to write this whole bit and I've got to get it perfect. And then I'll try it in the club tonight. And if it doesn't work, I'm binning it. I think it, it just allows yourself to say, right, 25 minutes, then a break. And I can reward myself with that time off. And I won't look at Facebook. I won't look at how many views on my TikTok, whatever, in that time, I, I will focus for 25 minutes. Whereas if you say, I'm gonna focus for three hours, you're going to get distracted. And, but I, I don't know that that's specifically a London or a, new, or a, a UK yeah. thing, it's just a technique. Yeah. I, 
I think most of my colleagues have different techniques on writing and getting material out. I have my own way of doing it, which is very different than yours, but yours is interesting and something I would definitely try. Um, my rule is for every hour of, of writing, you get one minute of material. That doesn't mean you'll get it then. If you write for an hour, you may get nothing, and then later on you'll go about your day and something will just come to you because you put yourself in that mindset. Mm. My best writing is on stage. I do a lot of crowd work. I tape my set and then I listen to it after and sort of narrow down what I said and turn it into a bit. Okay. Which of course I can't do right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> so one thing I find one thing that I really love about the UK scene is we've got so many sort of variety. You know, like when you go to so many different restaurants, you've got like pizzas, you've got, you got uh, Indian food, you've got Chinese food, like, and that's so many different choices of food. And in the UK, we've got so many different kind of acts. We've got like magicians, we've got clown acts, we've got character acts, we've got like one-liners, we've got musical comedy. And we got like sort of long sports storytellers and more sort of and like as you as he said Milton Jones short punchy one liners, and some 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 acts like Russell Hicks they just completely crowd work and yet they destroy. Um, in New York, like you guys are so so sharp and like strong and like you guys are so confident on stage. Whenever when I went there, like you guys have like balls of steel and basically skin like a rhino's ass and like we I'm, have to deal with each other which is the hardest part <laughs> <laughs> and i'd like to sort of look at so in new york what would you say are the yeah what, what would you say are the general sort of variances in style of comedy in new york and the type of comedians there are so many comedians in new york right now it's ridiculous even during the pandemic before the it's like when I first started, I started 20 years ago, we all knew each other. Now, everybody I meet knows a comedian, wants to be a comedian. So the competition is incredible. Um, in terms of differences, I love what you said about, about England. I love the idea of being on stage after someone with puppets and someone with music after me. Like, But it feels like it's a lot of the same thing, I'm sorry to say. Like, it's a lot of, like, really tight jokes as quick as possible, get that stuff out. And that's, that's, not, that's not to say that's the way it is in the rest of the states, but in New York, they are looking for something that's considered legit, and then the other things are looked down on. I love all kinds of acts, but a lot of people here don't. And... Okay, what would you say, um, what, so what, yeah, my question there is like, so what would they think of, uh, I don't know, if someone went to the cellar and they were doing some sort of puppets for 20 minutes and they were just talking to stage, what, what would happen? So that wouldn't happen at the cellar unless the person was already ridiculously established. Um, but I, I opened for somebody in New Jersey who had lots of puppets and hats and the audience absolutely loved the act. So I think you brought that guy to New York, have him do 10 minutes. The audience might enjoy the act, but the comedians won't. I, no. think, it, I think some of it has to do with like, like a jealousy thing because it's easier, it's easier to get attention that way than it is to just stand there 
and talk. I think that might be part of part of it, but also it's even in New York, it depends on where you are. So like if you're at Caroline's or Broadway, which are Midtown, you're getting a different audience than if you're at Greenwich Village Comedy Club, where the audience will be very heavily NYU students who are, you know, they're NYU students. They, they're very educated, they're very young, and they're, they are very woke. So it's, you can't, you can't dabble in anything. You have to sort of stay in a certain pizza, cool box. Okay. And what are your thoughts, Philip? I, d I did a few gigs on the open mic in New York a long time ago. Um, and I, I think I'd agree with that. I don't remember seeing any variety from anything. I, I did I, probably about four or five gigs. I was, there, I was there just there on holiday. Um, but I did a few gigs and I honestly couldn't say that I saw anything other than one person on stage telling jokes about something that's happened to them that day or you know um i don't i don't think it really i, cl I clocked that until now that like when you say I, yeah actually there, there was no variety here it depends i think an audience doesn't always want variety and yeah. i have been in plenty of rooms where you've got anything from five to twenty acts on a bill and it's just stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. And then you throw in one thing that's a bit different and the audience goes, no. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to hear a song. Tell <laughs> me a joke. I'm just saying, you know, so it, it really varies. I think clubs like to have variety, but audiences maybe aren't, so bothered because for them they've come out for a comedy night and they don't maybe they don't know what all the genres are maybe they don't know musical comedy as a thing or puppets or um i mean even, even in the uk for a long time women were considered a genre you never see two women on the same bill because oh here here too here yeah too. Like, well you, we've you you got your novelty act don't need another <laughs> one um and that, that's slowly improving um Actually, one of the things I'm gutted about with, with COVID, I, I run a comedy club in Boreham Wood. And um, for the first time ever, I had booked a, an all-female lineup, apart from me comparing. Um, I'd booked an all-female lineup, and it also got cancelled because of COVID. And I just don't know when I would get that level of quality of acts, A, on the same date, willing to do it, an audience willing to buy into it. You know... I think audiences are really tricky about what they consider comedy. And if, if you get a comedy savvy audience, they, they're much more willing to give things a try. But I've seen audiences sit there in silence whilst the comedians are in hysterics watching a comedian that they love, but the audience are just completely bemused by. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, sometimes? I remember speaking, you know, you hear, like, I speak to some, sometimes as a comedian, sometimes you do so well at a gig, you get really high and you get really confident, and then you, like, you do terrible in the next gig, you're like, why did that happen? And, like, you did the same material, same everything, similar sort of crime, you're like, why? 
But that's where I think sometimes the crowd has an effect and it could be your fault. It could be nothing that they've done, but they're a completely different group of people. It's a different room. So anything from the stage height, the ceiling height, the how close people are packed together, whether they've had a bad day, what the weather was like. Maybe you're telling a dark joke about cancer and there's someone in the room who's got an aunt who's had cancer. You know, anything can turn an audience or just turn a gig. But also if you've got bulletproof jokes or if you've got the skill to stand on stage and know how to read the room and play the room. And as Sharon said, you can appeal to the left and the right so that you know how to play that. That's where experience comes in. And that gives you the opportunity to be the stronger comedian on the night. Yeah. Do you, with, with all these different rooms, because like in the UK, there's a lot of talk that there's, they say that there's the mainstream circuit and then they say there's the urban circuit. Do you have that sort of thing in New York as well? Sort of? Yeah, we have, the, we have the club comics that play the major clubs in the city that are um, some known and some not known at the same time, yeah. but all people uh, in, that are mainstream. And then we have uh, rooms that are in Brooklyn that are like story rooms where you might see people doing more experimental stuff and telling like longer form jokes just to tell stories. Um, I've also done some unique things in Queens where you're telling a joke and someone behind you is putting pictures up, like slides. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's actually historically harder to get ahead in the underground rooms, but when it happens, it happens very, very quickly. Um, I see people plugging away at the main, the main rooms, slow, slow, slow to a goal, if that makes sense. Um, we also have here, you know, this is, the, this is the New York scene we're describing, long showcase shows, but Caroline's, and also when you leave the city and go to New Jersey, the Connecticut or Pennsylvania, or upstate New York, you have a standard three-person show, a host, a middle, and a headliner, which is obviously very different because once when you're when you're performing for an hour, you're taking them on like a long, like a long journey. It's very, very different than being on stage at a major club in New York City where your jokes just have to be fine-tuned, solid, quick. Yeah. That's very interesting that you've you've got uh, the host, the middle, and the headliner as your three-person bill because here a three-person bill would be the the compare an opening act a middle act then the headliner and quite often if i compare people come up to you after the show and say why don't you do comedy you're very funny and they i don't think people always realize that the compare is a comedian mm -hmm. but in new york it does seem to be that the compare is considered much more uh, a bigger part of the show than just doing the admin and introducing the acts. Yeah, so compare is, is, is another, is how you say host? What Sorry, I'm yeah, saying. host, yeah. Uh, that's, that's so interesting that we even have different words for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you usually as a host uh, on a long form show, the host will be the newest comedian um, mm. on the bill, even though it's much harder to host than it is to middle, that's the easiest spot but that person's usually been doing it a bit longer. And they're usually, they're usually respected and they're uh, oftentimes 
audience comes to see them because they're newer comics. So their friends and family aren't, aren't used to this. It is an old hat to them. But in Manhattan, it's a big role. You have to be very, a very solid comic and you have to be very solid at crowd work in order to be a host. Mm. And one thing that I would like to sort of discuss, because this is this is something that sort of age of time with, with comedy as a whole, they always talk about how sort of American humour and UK humour is so different. And one thing I'd like to ask both of you guys is like, what are your perceptions on that idea? Oh, like what I think, even though I have no idea what I think comedy is like in England. Okay, so I just finished watching the IT crowd and I absolutely loved it and it's brilliant and I never heard of it. I was just like, it popped up as a suggestion on Netflix and it's, it's so, so that's probably going to influence what I'm about to say, but I assume that, I assume that comedy in England is smarter and takes more risks takes more risks and is willing to be willing to be silly as well as um, walk the edge of what's what's like appropriate and and just smarter. I'm sure you're smarter. <laughs> Look at our country right now. I'm sure you're smarter. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're smart now. It's fine. As of, as of yesterday, you're fine. Um, I I, that's, I find it really interesting when you say about we're willing to take more risks. When I was doing the few gigs in New York that I did, the one thing I really noticed, the difference between the UK and the American circuit, I thought, was that on the UK circuit, it was less important because the likelihood of you doing a gig and being spotted and becoming a star tomorrow was highly unlikely. You'd work at it for five, 10 years, 20 years, and you'll, you'll progress much along those lines. Whereas in New York, it really felt like everyone thought this gig could be the one or whatever level you were, I met people who it was their first gig and some it was their hundredth gig and some probably even much more than that. But everyone thought there could be a talent scout here. There could be someone from the chat shows, someone here from the late night shows. Mm. And I'm going to be, so no one was willing to take the same kind of risks because they didn't want to appear unfunny when all they're doing is trying stuff out. Um, so in England, I think, it doesn't feel when we do open mic nights or new material nights, it doesn't feel that there's as much pressure to do that. Is that fair? I hope it's not offensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been doing comedy long enough that I'm, I'm jaded. I'm past the point of thinking that, but I'm still often afraid there's always someone there. There's always some person there that's the reason why I can't take risks. So I go to New Jersey. I have a car, so I go to New Jersey to do that stuff. I know having a car here makes a massive difference as well. I was a, I was known as a London driver, which meant I could get booked onto better lineups. And within a few weeks, I was doing sort of paid work, driving other acts to gigs, doing my own spot and then driving them back. So yeah, having a car and leaving New York to get to New Jersey or anywhere else must be really important. It's, it's huge here. Having a, I, I don't know if you, what you know about having a car in New York, but it sucks is the only way I can put it. It's very rough. <laughs> I got a ticket this weekend of not even, not even batting an eye. It's just... Oh. 
Really? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's having a car here is rough, but I have to. Mm. I don't think you can be a professional comedian making a living and not have a car unless you have like real, real, um, even D level celebrity. Like you have to have a certain level of celebrity to make it without a car. Here. And one thing that I find quite interesting because Sharon, in like the last podcast we did, we spoke about like the university scene, which is quite popular in America. Mm-hmm. And one thing that sort of I want to ask you, Philip, is how what's it like doing like the university gigs in the UK? How does that structure? Because that's a big thing in sort of New York. It's quite a big circuit here as well, but I think probably not as big as America. Um, I don't really do much of it because I am 42, grumpy, and no 20-year-old student really cares about what I have to talk about. So the few that I've done, I've compared more than doing a spot um, so I can chat to the audience. But I, I never really connected with them in the same way because I'm not young and cool and hip. And even when I was young, I wasn't that young and cool and hip. Um, And the fact that I use phrases like young and cool and hip, I think proves just how much I wouldn't fit in on that side of the circuit. Um, But I know there are some comedians and some comedy bookers that do, uh, do the university circuit because they get paid so well to do it. Um, I don't really understand how students can pay comedians that well to do it, but uh, yeah, it's a big circuit. The students don't pay, the school pays, and I'm sure you would do great. I'm sure they'd love you. You know, I think sometimes we we think they don't relate to us, but they do. I mean, they, you know, you were young once, even if you weren't hip, and not everyone that's watching you is hip. Not every college student is hip. That's right. I would find my niche. and one thing that i find sort of interesting is how does the because being the uk is quite a smaller place and like traveling to different parts is fairly easier how does it work in america because i mean if you went to la or something and you drove all the way there you maybe end up the day after tomorrow so if I, I mean, if I was going to go to LA, I would fly and then I would rent a car there and I would stay with another comedian. And uh, right before the pandemic, that's something I had intended to do every six months because I love it there and I miss it there. But now, obviously, California is no better to be at than New York. Uh, it's one of the worst places to be right now. But places like Pennsylvania, I'll drive to Pennsylvania for the night. Um, depending on how much it pays and where it is, I will or won't need a hotel room. And that's, um, I work in Ohio regularly, but of course I, there I stay. I don't know if there's a perspective that's about 10 hours from me. So if I'm going to go somewhere that's 10 hours for me, I have to have a hotel, hotel room. But if I go to, let's say like, um, Higginson or something, it's like three hours. I don't need to stay there. I'll, I'll drive three hours perform and come home. And also, and this is like obviously pre-pandemic, but you, you meet people. The more you perform comedy, the more you meet people. And so you just like stay with friends. Yeah. And actually, I, I want to ask, I've got a, one thing I want to see is 
how what are the sort of there are quite a number of festivals in America, and one thing I do—I I don't really know much about them. I know like there's a New York Comedy Festival, and like how how do the comedy festivals generally operate in the U.S.? There's they're very very varied, and I'm I'm talking pre-pandemic stuff because now people are doing online festivals, and it just I don't know that it has the same impact, but. At one point, and this isn't this isn't the U.S. It's it's Canada. Our big festival was Montreal. Like if if you could get into Montreal, you might actually have some changes in your career from just doing it. The same holds true for the Boston Comedy Festival. But many of the comedy festivals are there for fun, great opportunities to meet comedians from all over all over the world. But I don't I don't know other than those that getting into the festivals actually going to have any kind of big impact. It's I'm a good really, experience. Just... I'm really sorry. Ah. I'm really sorry. I need to take a phone call very quickly. Bear with sorry. No worries. And you're like, this is terrible. There's... Yeah, and also, they, you know, they offer to pay you in sandwiches and you think, well, I need it for the real, so I'll do it. And then you never get your copy. Or as you said, yeah. you get the copy and it looks terrible because it's really amateur or just really lazily put together because they just needed a grade. And they treat you like cattle, even though you are the professional who should be treated like a tutor. They, you know, they should be learning from you. Um, but there's been a lot of work here that the unions have done to try and make sure that there's at least a minimum rate for student films. But loads of schools don't pay it still. I miss it though. Yeah, I just miss seeing other people. <laughs> I've been, uh, I've done a couple of sketches outside that are that have like that feel, but they're they're very short. I wrote them, I edited them. They were if they don't look good, it's my fault, which I like. But I think that's one of the reasons I took to TikTok because if I put a tweet out, it's a a joke that might be read. Whereas if I can act it out, and I don't do it like a sketch, but I, I do it like a piece of stand-up maybe, or a, a bit more conversational, then that feels to me like I'm performing or I'm, I'm producing content rather than just putting a tweet out. Yeah. yeah. I, I, did a, I did a sketch with some friends about the monolith situation, and it was some of the most fun I've had in a long time. Where do you put them? Your sketches. Uh, I put mine on Instagram, YouTube, and then I made like a one-minute version for TikTok. But I, YouTube's really my favorite forum. Not that I'm getting a huge following from it, but I like it. Yeah. Hmm. How about you? Where are you putting yours? Well, I'm focusing mainly on TikTok just because I don't have the time to sit, write a sketch act out, edit, because of the homeschooling and everything else. Whereas a TikTok, you can film in a minute. If you want to make it good, film it in two minutes. Um, you can edit it on there quite nicely to some extent to kind of crop it, um, add the subtitles, and it's, it's out there. And then you can download it from there to put that onto Reels on yeah, that's true. Instagram. So you, you can use it elsewhere. Um, 
the, the kids comedy I was doing out on YouTube. But again, it's so time consuming to put everything out. And then you might put it out on Facebook and it gets 10,000 views and you put it on YouTube and it gets 100 views. And you think, well, if I'd only put it on YouTube, maybe all those 10,000 people would never have seen it. So it's a good thing I put it on Facebook. But then you kind of water down the, the reach. And also I think the numbers on Facebook are a bit uh, cheeky. Cause apparently if you scroll past a video, you still count as a view. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, whereas on YouTube, I think they have to watch a certain amount of the video for it to be considered a view, which means it's a more accurate way of knowing what your following is. Yeah. I'd rather have engaged followers than numbers. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's what I hear a lot on a lot of social media. They say it's more like yeah, you may have followers, but I mean like if they're not engaging, there's no point, and it doesn't mean they're and, and they're not fans of your work if they're not engaging with it. Yeah, if you have a million followers, but you only get a hundred likes on all your videos, then that's a huge proportion of people that aren't engaging with what you're doing, but they follow you. But sometimes it may take them a few times of seeing you to actually become a fan. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so one of the things I want to say is, so we spoke, Sharon about the new American sort of festivals. Uh, Philip, could we have a little chat about the UK comedy festivals and how they sort of work? Um, the main one is Edinburgh. The Edinburgh Festival is, I think, the most respected. It's the biggest arts festival in the world. Um, it's also quite varied as well. So anyone and everything can go there and do their thing there's the free version where you don't have to pay a penny to do it and there's the paid version where you can bankrupt yourself getting your big break or attempting to get your big break and some people love edinburgh some people hate edinburgh some people make it part of their annual calendar and some people never go anywhere near it but it is i think it's one of the best places to be i'm gutted to have not been there this august last august um, I've been going for the past 10 years, either for a week or a month. And the opportunities are, are they're huge because you can build an audience of people who will take a chance. They'll, they'll just be walking past a venue. Oh, what's, what's starting in 10 minutes? Oh, there it is. I'll go and watch that. So they'll take a chance. And I've, I've performed to two people. I've performed to 50 people, to a hundred people. And the best gig I had was to two people where they were so engaged and I'm still in touch with one of them now. They became a fan stroke friend that, you know, every so often a, a Twitter update, you know. So the Edinburgh one is huge. The others, there's Brighton, there's Leicester. They, I think, are probably the two next biggest ones, I think. I hope I've not missed anything out. Um, there are loads of smaller festivals as well. Leicester has been going about 25 years and I still know people who live in Leicester that have never heard that there is a Leicester Comedy Festival. But the, I guess this, this goes to what we're saying about numbers aren't as important as engagement because the fans that go to the Leicester Comedy Festival are brilliant. 
They are so engaged. They're so connected. Um, everything else feels like it's working towards Edinburgh, though. So you've got Brighton that I think was was maybe in March, April, usually. Uh, Leicester is actually Leicester's February sort of time. But everything's you're doing previews up until you do Edinburgh. So all the other festivals feel like you're doing tryouts for the show you want to take to Edinburgh. So maybe that's why they're not taken as seriously by some people because it's not the finished product. A lot of them sort of bank on the, the, the fringe name, don't they? So you get like a Shast, they call it Shastby fringe or the, the Vauxhall fringe. Is that? I think so. Anyone who wants to set up a festival can add the, the word fringe to it afterwards. I did it in Boreham Wood. We, with the club that I run, we did a, a preview season and there was an option to turn it into a fringe. And it's, I thought, I don't want to be curating a whole fringe, but I'll do, it, I'll do an Edinburgh preview season where people can come and try out their shows and the audience know that it's a tryout and there'll be notes and they'll be asking for feedback afterwards, maybe. But yeah, Shaftesbury Fringe, I, I had a lovely time there. Um, again, gutted, it got cancelled. It's a beautiful, small little village that no one's ever heard of. Um, and it was packed, absolutely packed. The, the show I did was amazing. You know, people just were in a venue. They saw what was on. I did one show and it was rammed. But I think one of both of these festivals like in America and the UK, the thing is with the big festivals, they are places to be if you want to get signed or like if you want to go further up. And one thing I do want to ask in 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 America, Sharon, are they a bit more? They're more restricted who they let in, aren't they? As a whole, the 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 shows you want to get on are really hard to get into. There are tons of shows that are not particularly helpful, but you still get to be part of the festival and are not hard to get into. There, it's expensive. The whole thing is an expensive process. So I have not done many because it's never been worth it to me to do that, to spend what it takes me three months to earn for two nights that may or may not get to anything. Um, I, had, I had hoped to audition for Montreal this, this coming year, but obviously, everything's done for now yeah. um, but, it, but there are tons of festivals you can get in you can get into and do spots for that just won't make a difference but is it that you would do you would go to those festivals just to do spots on other people's shows or would you take like your <laughs> special even festival shows festival shows have main stage shows and side shows right the side shows maybe somebody will walk in maybe you'll get lucky but is it worth it to spend that kind of money to say you were at the festival and then maybe get lucky. That's, that's the thing. So there are people, there are a lot of people in the business that have that extra funds and good for them. And I would, I all power to them. I would too, if I had it, but I don't. So I have to be really selective. Well, there's a big debate in the UK at the moment about class in comedy and how things like Edinburgh are edging out the working class comedians who can't yeah. afford to pay £10,000 to go to Edinburgh for one month to do a show. 
that may or may not get noticed because it's not in the right venue, it's not in the right room. And and I know there was a a showcase. There's a comedy showcase where they audition. I think they they have four people, three or four people on the bill, and you have to pay about two thousand pounds to be in that. Oh. And so they set up someone else set up a um, a working class showcase where they you had to be working class in order to apply for it, and they crowdfunded, I think it was, to raise money to make it happen, and it was really su- successful for a, a couple of years. Really great at getting the right comedians who wouldn't normally get noticed because they couldn't afford to get noticed a platform where they could go and do edinburgh that's awesome um but at the same time i'm sure it's harder to get into that because there are more comedians trying to get into that than there are comedians trying to pay two thousand pounds yes what yeah it's it's what one thing i want to look at is do you feel with things in comedy changing like the cost of edinburgh philip that maybe they may change the cost of and make it more affordable in terms of accommodation well the problem is it's not in there and it's not their best interest to make it affordable because they know that we'll come and we'll spend the money so landlords who own the private properties can charge whatever they want a, a new law was passed last Edinburgh, so not last year, but the year before, um, where landlords were no longer allowed to kick their existing tenants out so that they could have Edinburgh festival goers spending a whole amount, load amount of money on their flats just for August. So they, they were giving renters stronger rights. Um, venues... And I've done the free fringe, so I've I've never paid to do Edinburgh, and I'm sure that's that's had an effect on who's come to see my shows. But it's also had an effect on the fact I'm able to feed my family. So it's a balance. Um, th- but there's no incentive to make it cheaper because people are desperate to ed- to do Edinburgh, so they're desperate to pay, and there will always be someone who will pay ten thousand pounds or whatever it is to go and fill those rooms. And some will make that money back. Some will, their agents will lend them the money and then they'll be indebted to them until they've worked it off, which is technically a form of slavery, but that's a bigger debate. Um, the, the venues that are charging that amount of money don't want people that can't afford to do it, to be able to do Edinburgh because then they won't get their money. So it's like there's a little mini cartel that's, that's mm. happening that's a yeah that's it's a funny thing sometimes isn't it like sometimes when you try and run a show in like pubs and that they don't sometimes they don't think of like the value you're going to bring the customers they're just thinking about the money 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 yeah and it's yeah when they say money is the root of all evil right yeah but it's a necessary evil i suppose and it's a whole package for the venue because the people who have a lot of money to perform have a lot of friends who have a lot of money. Um, so they're just, they're going to make more money off of these people than they will off of somebody who has been a comic without a level of fame for 20 years because that person's friends are probably other comics who haven't made, and even, even if they come and see you perform, 
they're not going to buy the most expensive thing on the menu. And, and I get it. Like, I'm not even, even though obviously I wish things were more fair, I get it. Everybody's trying to survive. Everybody has their own interests. It's not up to the festival to decide what is and isn't comedy for the rest of the world. It's their business to survive as a festival. Yeah. How do you see the festival shaping up with like so many of the venues that they use for these shows? probably not being on i mean they depend on these these festivals to stay open i mean what's what's going to happen there i think that's where we'll see a real divide in rich and poor because the venues that can afford to stay open will stay open and the ones that can't will be flats in no time probably because they'll be sold off um i did i said that the free fringe in edinburgh and i was in a smaller venue beautiful pub venue called Banshee Labyrinth and it was so such a great vibe in that room that you wouldn't recreate in the bigger venues the huge theatres but there's no way of knowing if those smaller venues are going to stay open and if they are going to stay open if they're going to be interested in opening their doors to comedy for a month in August when that might stop people drinking at their bar because they're sat in a room watching comedy instead. A flip side is it encourages people to drink at their bar because they're in the venue and they wouldn't normally be at 12 o'clock, you know, at, at lunchtime and they're, they're drying, they're, they're buying drinks in the bar. Um, I think a lot of the festivals will take things online again. So there'll be the hybrid of performing in a live venue it might also be live streamed. So then you've got people that aren't engaging in the venue at all. So they're not going to make any money. So maybe they'll have to start charging the performers to be there. Um, but our shows, we, we did a bucket collection at the end. That's how you made the money on it. You, you do the show and at the end you, you do a bleeding heart story and you say, you know, it costs a lot to come and do the festival. And if you, if you like the show, put some, put some money in the bucket, that kind of thing. Which is fine in person, but in a on Zoom, you're not going to have a PayPal link that people definitely put money into because there's less of an incentive. They might do it, but there's there's not that same guilt of walking past somebody holding a bucket up at you. Um, so I think all of these things connected mean the festivals are in real trouble unless they learn how to adapt to life post-COVID. Mm. And that's the challenge though. I mean, humans as a whole, most of us, once we get used to a successful format that works, we don't like to change it. We don't want to like take risks or like potentially that it won't work. So, I mean, they may, as you said, they, they want to choose the easy option that they think is definitely going to work rather than like think of other things. Because well, venues have lost money this year, they don't want to take a risk and and lose more money. No, but it is what it is. But I mean, at the end of the day, when things get better, they'll really be good. I mean, maybe it'll change attitude of audiences, and maybe it'll make things better because people will appreciate it more. What's really bizarre is I had made my New Year's resolution for 2020 to be uh, focused on having an online presence. So it's just, 
bizarre that that ended up being the only option. Um, but here we do, we put like our Venmo links up in our Zoom shows and the kind of money we make is not worth mentioning, but it's not nothing either. Um, I don't know if it's worth mentioning $20, but it's $20 more than I would have if I just knew the Zoom show. I think at the start of lockdown, when we did online shows and we mentioned whether it was PayPal or coffee or whatever the link was that you were sharing, that was, that was fine. It worked as a bit of a novelty and people were like, yeah, do you know what? I will give a little something. And then you do another show and another show. And, uh, and I think now people are, are tired of it. So they're not putting as much money in those buckets. And also people have had a year nearly of lockdown and everyone's struggling. People don't have the money to spare for a bit of entertainment. They won't necessarily buy a ticket in advance. If they do buy a ticket, you can only sell one ticket per household. So whereas for a live show, you'd have six people buying a ticket. Now you've got one household buying a ticket, but you can't put the price up so much just to cover that because that's just how many people live in that house. And if someone has a house with two people and someone has a house with six people, the house of two can't afford 50 pounds, dollars, compared with five or $10, just because the numbers are changed. So it's all, it's all a balancing act. Um, I, I started doing the, the PayPal thing and asking people for donations here and there, and that worked for a little while. I then found if you can give something back, because you know obviously a free show isn't considered giving back enough, apparently. Um, so selling merchandise has made a difference. I've got a few things that I do, like a um, uh, few, like the joke book I've got, the, um, uh, I do some personalized limericks that I write and personalized greeting videos for kids that I can do. So if you can offer things like that, people are more willing to invest financially. But now I think people are struggling. It's, it's just been a really crappy year for everyone. <laughs> And who were like your heroes that, that, that inspire you guys to go through your difficult times and like to come out on top? Oh, I don't know if I'm coming out on top. <laughs> I'm, I'm barely coming through my difficult time. Yeah, a month ago, I think I would have had an answer for that. But now I don't. Maybe my pet parrot, because she seems to tolerate a lot more than I'm able to tolerate. And she's living, you know, she's in... <laughs> homebound she, she should be in africa so she can't actually fly outside and she still finds ways to be happy is that pathetic isn't it but i like the past month has just been has been too much for me to look at someone else and be like oh yeah i think the people that inspire me now are the people that are honest about how shit it all is <laughs> you know <laughs> I, what i don't want to hear is anyone enjoying lockdown <laughs> Because I don't believe you. Like even even I, I'm in a different situation than than lots of others, but I'm I'm actually better off than many others as well. I've got uh, two children, a three year old and a six year old. My career's on the rocks. I'm homeschooling them because my wife is a key worker, so she's working pretty much full time. And I'm not a teacher, but I am now a teacher, and it's had a really crappy effect on my relationship with my kids, my mental health, the family's mental health. And I don't believe there's anyone 
that hasn't got a similar story, even if you don't have kids, people living with their parents, people aren't able to go out, people can't date, people who yeah. were in the middle of fertility cycles have had to stop trying for children, people who have lost loved ones haven't been able to go to say goodbye to them or go to their funeral. You know, everyone is having a shit lockdown. And if you tell me otherwise, you're a liar. Even Bill Gates, even Jeff Bezos is, you know, they're, they're not having a great time mentally. Financially, yes, but they can't go anywhere to spend that money. So I think those are the people that inspire me now. Those people that are honest about how awful it is and are using that experience to maybe create content, put material. You know, if you look on TikTok, there's loads of people creating original content and there's loads of people copying other people's original content. And I, I, I want to see people using their own experiences to be original and funny. And if they can be honest about how crappy life is, then they have my respect. And to be honest, Philip, I think that would make a great, please put that as some sort of TikTok sketch. Like, I think I have, I, I, I probably have put something similar. Um, no, do you know, I, I, I did put one up recently. I, I went to the, when I was at the dentist. So I don't know, I don't know how much of this you'll cut, but I, I had to interrupt the Zoom call to take a call from my dentist because the filling that he put in a couple of days ago is loose. And I think it's because I had a 12 year old dentist. Um, but he he's asking me questions. Oh, I know you grind your teeth. Is there much stress in your life at the moment? <laughs> and I was like, have you watched the news? Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of stress in my life right now, actually. You know, it, it was mind-blowing to me that he asked such a ludicrous question so I, I think i put something like that on on tiktok and that was appreciated by 19 people i think um, <laughs> but yeah you, you have to use your experiences for creating content because that's what we do if i was if i was going to live gigs i'd be talking about that on stage so tiktok now is my stage and all right, i don't have millions of followers got 1600 or something i think i don't know um but it's not gonna change my life anytime soon but that's currently my audience therefore i can put out the stuff i want to on there and have a bit of a rant but i don't want to see people enjoying life because no one should be enjoying their lives right now yeah god you see in the newspaper with these bloody um love island people going to Dubai and like what's that all about that's mental in America, do you have that in America? With the, well, you do, but I mean, like, we've got these really ridiculous people, like, just going to Dubai and, like, just taking pictures and saying, oh, life is so hard. What's hard about posing in a bikini? Yeah, see, I'm, I'm with you. Like, my, I've been in, in Manhattan through this, and I'm deeply envious of anyone who has access to fresh air. The ability to go outside and breathe air is something that the few times I have been able to this year, I can't believe how amazing it is. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard for me. I have friends who are in New Jersey and places like that and they're sitting in their back porches and they're like, it sucks to be out here. We're just barbecuing. That's all we're doing is we're just barbecuing. I'm like, I have not, I have not seen the sun in a week. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but I think everyone has, their level and 
I, there are times I hate my situation and I moan about, oh, I'm stuck here with my wife. My oh, I feel for anybody stuck with kids. I'm so and, sorry. Right, but, but, then, but then I also know lots of people who are single, living by themselves, or just living with their partner, or just living with their flatmate, or just living with their parents. Everyone's, everyone's got a low level of kind of morale at the moment because look at what's going on in the world. I think we have to accept that, that what we're going through is not just us. And that's why I had a conversation with a friend the other day on the phone and I was so pleased to do it because he moaned more than I did. And it was so nice to know I'm not alone in my misery <laughs> because everyone, everyone's just having a bad time. Eat the, the grass is always greener. And if you're sat out on your porch in New Jersey and you're looking at the life of man, my sister lives in Manhattan and she, I, I look at her life and I think, wow, amazing. You, you live in a you know, beautiful high rise apartment. You live by yourself. You work in an amazing job. You must, you can go to the park whenever you want. So you, I think your, your apartment overlooks the park. So you go whenever she wants. Amazing, beautiful. And then she'll look at our lives and go, God, he's got the wife, he's got the kids, he's so lucky, he's got a house, a garden, so lucky. You know, ev everyone's jealous. There's, of there's something about basic needs, though. We went through about three months of fireworks 24-7. I don't know if you saw it in the news there, but people yeah. were shooting off fireworks and, like, the police weren't doing anything. And we, so we couldn't sleep, we couldn't get fresh air. Our groceries just got re-delivered because they were sent to the wrong place. But for three months, we couldn't get food. Um, so that's like a, I didn't think that in America, as a working class person, I would ever be in a situation like, like that. Um, so it was, it was, it was a, a different level of rough. We were hungry, we were exhausted. Um, mm. But that's, uh, luckily that's passed, but now one thing with everything yeah it is it's a it's a mental time but i mean we, there are vaccines coming up 2021 end of the year so at least there'll be a start of a progress of like us getting back to normal that's that's the one good thing you know it could if imagine how worse it would be if they didn't find a vaccine it's terrible now but we it's there's at least some sort of hope uh but the thing that really sort of annoys me more than anything are those are people trying to make all these theories about it being fake and like it's just like governments trying to control and this and that. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that and all these think it's all a lie and Well my my dad's had his first dosage and he's the most vulnerable person I know and he's okay. Uh he has been in and out of the hospital for the past month due to some serious health problems that came up because of his really, really sweet cat. I feel like everybody should know this, that a cat, um, a playful cat bite could become lethal. Um, and he's had it and he's fine. Um, I'm personally afraid to, to take it because I have allergies and people with allergies, there's always other kinds of concern, but it, it's, it's really sad what's happening with the news. I have, I have friends who've always been like, smart and and lovely telling me how people are coming to get us and lots of paranoid stuff of the past year that I never thought I'd hear um 
I think we can blame social media for a lot of that. Yeah. Whilst we jump on for the content that we can put out there, there are loads of people who use it to spread misinformation and some people lap it up. And I think as comedians, we don't just have our social bubble on Facebook. We have people that we've met once at a comedy club, people that we've gigged with, people that we've worked for, audience members maybe. So we have a much wider range of voices and opinions on our on our social media radar. Um, I, I'm not in a hurry to take the vaccine, but I'm not scared of it. I think my wife is having it next week because she's a key worker, so qualifies. I'm surprised that she qualifies, I have to say, because she's not yet seeing people. She's working from home, but she does qualify. Um, my worry about the vaccine is that people will get carried away and think it actually is working before it's working. So there are lots of reports of people who've had their first dose and so they think that that's it, they're immune. And actually they've got to have their second dose before they're immune. And we don't really even know what immune looks like at the moment because they've only just created the vaccine. And these things normally take 10 years to get processed, which I know is a lot of, a lot of it's the red tape. So I'd, I'm not concerned that, that with the speed that it's happened with. Um, I'm actually writing a sketch at the moment where I go on TikTok and I, I talk about how I'm, uh, I don't understand why people are so concerned about the, the vaccine. It's fine. I had mine last week, blah, blah. And by the end of the TikTok, I'm speaking with a Russian accent and I'm doing all kinds of things that are, <laughs> that are Russian. Um, because that for me is what people have been talking about is, well, it's, it's sponsored by Russians. So they're injecting it with microchips or it's the Chinese trying to control us or, and I think the other problem we, we have on both sides of the pond, so America and uh, England will have this, is our leaders, and I know yours changed yesterday, which is fantastic, but oh, I think it's fantastic. Sorry if other people don't. But our leaders I know how you could not. <laughs> have let us down. I, I think our leaders have spread misinformation and made lies and made promises that they couldn't keep. You know, if you go back over our prime minister's speeches over the past year and the health secretary's speeches, there's lie after lie after lie. But people believe it and they believe it partly because they were scared. Both our leaders apparently had COVID and were hospitalised. I, I personally, I do believe it, but I know lots of people that don't believe it. Um, so I think I think too, which is so strange. I, I don't understand why they would lie about it. Not, yeah. Neither of them wants to look weak. So yeah. why would they lie about that? I, and also it's too many people to have in the conspiracy. It just takes one person to leak a photo or whatever. So, you know, <laughs> I, but I think we have both been led by very poor leaders. And if we can get ourselves a Joe Biden, that would be appreciated. <laughs> So you all, you all don't like your prime minister in I, general? I don't like his government. I, I, I don't know specifically about, I mean, he's a buffoon. He's a, he's a good time prime minister. So he'd be great when things are good, but he's not a wartime prime minister. He's not a pandemic prime minister, in my opinion. Um, he got f famous as a politician by going on chat shows and, TV comedy panel shows and that that kind of boosted his career and then he's London mayor 
and then he becomes a politician and then he becomes a uh, the prime minister foreign secretary prime minister um and yours we know the journey that got him to where he was um you know and i i watched what the press conference today from the new press secretary at the white house and it was just so serene it was you know she she led with facts and she started talking the truth and she was respectful to the journalists who were there to ask her questions and yeah, I, I'm amazed where, where we've got to, but I think we have a government that hasn't been sympathetic to the, the people that need the sympathy, which is why children aren't being fed at the moment and why people are being penalised for wanting to fix their mental health by just seeing a friend in the park. Yet when the politicians do it, they're let off without any consequence. I don't know if you saw our mayor dancing with his wife in Times Square. I don't know if that made it to your news, but here it was all <laughs> over. It's like, don't go to Times Square, don't go to Times Square, and there's the mayor. Wow. Just, oh, God. Yeah. But they, these are our leaders, and they're, they're sending mixed messages. And he, I mean, there's that famous press conference Boris Johnson gave where he said something, it, it was so contradictory he said so you should all stay home but if you can't stay home don't stay home but you should definitely stay home but if you need to go out go out but stay home and you're what it's like what what do we what do we do and as a comedian you're trying to find the funny in all of this you're trying to find um the the joke the um the the nonsense because that's what we do we we prick the bubble we we kind of take this the sting out of the tail of it and and if we can't do that then what's the point you know um the the tiktok i did yesterday that went viral was not my joke but i i shared nigella lawson who's a i don't know if she made it to the us but she's a very famous uk chef over here um and uh she put yesterday on twitter she she put her recipe of the day on her website was bitter orange tart <laughs> and I, I shared that on TikTok saying something like, you know, wh how, whatever I come up with as a comedian will never be as funny as this. And they showed that. You know, we, you have to find the comedy or what, what are we here for? What, you know, people need to laugh. People need the entertainment. And social media is an amazing place to be able to do that. But our governments have both messed up. We are... The UK has got the highest, I think, death rate per capita at the moment, I think. And no one's doing anything about it. So the comedians may, sometimes it feels like that's why they're not supporting the arts very much or supporting individual comedians, because we are the ones that highlight how terribly they're doing through satire and topical comedy. I was, I was never a political comedian. I was never a political person. Because I, I like, uh, I, wa oh, I always want a Star Trek ending. I want us to find common ground with those who are different than us. And I want to tell stupid jokes about silly things to make people laugh. But the past year, we haven't had that option. You can't not be political in this climate here. No. Well, we've had Brexit and we've had pandemic. So, and, and you've had Trump and pandemic. So you can't not have an opinion about it you meet an american you kind of want to know where they stand politically you meet an english person or a british person or someone from 
Europe and you want to know what their thoughts are on Brexit. And, you know, it's, it's mm. fascinating to me how anyone can not be political at the moment because it affects our lives in a way that it doesn't feel like things have affected it before. How did, how did Brexit affect you guys? Um, at the moment, it's looking like the biggest change for us will be the ability to work abroad. Uh, but the, the thing I noticed mainly was audience division. It used to be that you could make jokes about politics in a way that you can't now because the audience is much more divided. Um, I remember when the, the day Brexit was announced, so 2016, I did a gig and I was comparing it. I was hosting the show and I said to the audience, I think it was something like, give me a cheer if you voted to leave and half the room cheered. And I said, now give me a cheer if you're not a dick. And, <laughs> and the other half cheered and everyone, that was fine. I, I got away with it. I couldn't do that now because now I would be accused of being you know, left-wing snowflake bias. Well, you know, you, the audiences don't want to be challenged in the same way. And partly maybe that's because some people know how they voted hasn't worked out for them. And some people know that it will work out for them. Therefore, they don't want to be challenged on it by this white middle-class London man who come here with his opinions. Yeah. It's... Well, I mean, it, it goes into sort of attacking people's egos in a way, isn't it? Like you're there, sort of, if you, if you, if someone so strongly believes something and they're really passionate behind it and you say that they're wrong, they're going to get quite defensive. Right. Yeah. And you very rarely hear on Facebook or on social media. Oh, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, people double down on their lies and on, on their, what they believe because they, they don't want to admit they were wrong. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's brutal. But I mean, how are things going to get sorted out? How are you going to get a full understanding unless you have an open discussion? You're going to get divided. You're going to be in your little tribes. You're not going to like, the only way you're going to learn is have an open discussion, be willing to accept maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right, because otherwise, how are you going to learn? Well, ho hopefully things will start to get better from here. Um, hopefully. I, we all need a break from pain. Mm. Yeah. Except the injection pain. Yeah. <laughs> but Last no. night I looked up videos of Brussels griffins. And Brussels griffins, those tiny dogs with the smushed faces, they look like they have little beards. I just watched videos of them for 10 minutes, like, <laughs> just to feel good. You know, like, no, no drama. Look, happy little cute dogs. It's I just want to say, guys, like th this has been this has been a lot of fun, and this is definitely one of the best podcasts I've done. And it's, it's it was absolutely pleasure having you both. Lovely. Thank, Thank you so much for having me on. This was definitely the best part of my day. <laughs> yeah, mine. <laughs> and I think um, one thing I want you guys to do is like, yeah, just plug all the stuff you have, like let people know about your work. After you. So please go to my YouTube channel. All my stuff is Simon Says Laugh. You can see it up there if you post it. But um, 
my IG assignment underscore says laugh. Uh, go to my Facebook, Sharon Simon Comedy, and my TikTok, which is also Simon underscore says laugh. I have content coming out all the time, stuff on uh, my dating show. I have stand up from Broadway Comedy Club and Greenwich Village Comedy Club. And I'm going to be having a really exciting Star Trek show coming up soon. Ooh. Nice. Uh, and all mine, all my social medias at Phillips Comedy. Um, there's one Alan Phillip. Uh, so Phillips Comedy. That's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, my website's philipsimon.co.uk. And if you want to buy the book or any of the other bits I'm doing, just forward slash shop. And if you want me to homeschool your kids, then fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Did you train my parrot a little? I think she's, she's, you know, limited vocabulary. I'd love to hear her talk with a British accent. Well, I, I, uh, another TikTok I put out, I'd, I'd said we've, one of the homeschooling things we did was word, word of the day. And by the end of the first week, my kids had learned shit, twat and fuck. Yay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a teacher. I'm a, I'm a dad. I love my children. I'm very happy to be in their lives and, uh, very happy to be spending this time with them, but the the workload, no. So I, I just keep creating short content for TikTok instead. I can't, can't stress enough. I feel so much for for anyone home with kids. It's a, it's a level of thing that I would not be able to. I don't think I could get through. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, I I agree, and I appreciate when people tell me that, but I also do recognise that no one's having a good time. And, uh, you know, the luxury of having some time to myself would be a delight, but I, it would wear off very quickly. So, yeah. be strong, people. Yeah. Sounds like one of those self-help adverts um, for Sweeney <laughs> Bobbins or something. <laughs> you can do it. No, well, um, just want to say, guys, thank you for taking time. Um, Stay safe and well, guys. And I would love to have you guys on the podcast again. Thank you so much, Marvin. Lovely to meet you, Sharon. Lovely meeting you, Philip. Take care. <laughs>